Welcome to Novara Live. It's good to be back. I'm Michael Walker, and today I'm joined by Mike Bancole. Mike, how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad, Michael. Very jealous of all your, your Glasgow stories, but glad you had a, a lovely time out there. It was very good. You can probably hear it in my voice. Um, lots of Elton John sing-alongs have taken you know, some of my usual fluency away. Um, but I actually don't, I, I don't mind the huskiness as long as it doesn't become a cold, which I think I'm going to avoid this year. Obviously, last year I got COVID after Glastonbury, so I had to take a whole week off. This year I'm hoping it's going to be okay. Some big stories tonight. We're talking about rental hell in Britain and whether Labour's plans match the challenge. Um, we'll also be talking about Just Stop Oil's latest action. And on a related theme, a new report into climate change has been released. It's completely damning of the government and it is the government's official advisor. So it's a, it's a very significant moment when it comes to Britain's handling of climate change. We'll be discussing that later. First story. The UK government is on standby for the possible collapse of Thames Water. That's after a dramatic 24 hours in which the company's chief executive resigned from the company, whose 14 billion debt pile has become unsustainable as interest rates have rocketed. And Thames Water's financial distress is unlikely to be an isolated incident. This is from the Financial Times. After being sold with almost no debt at privatisation three decades ago, UK water companies have taken on borrowings of £60 billion, diverting income from customer bills to pay interest payments. The entire sector is now under pressure from rising inflation, including soaring energy and chemical prices and higher interest payments on its debts. S&P, the rating agency, has negative outlooks for two-thirds of the UK water companies it rates, indicating the possibility of downgrades as the result of weaker financial resilience. More than half of the sector's debt, on average, is inflation-linked. Offwat, so there, the regulator, said in December that it was concerned about the financial resilience of several water companies, Thames Water, Yorkshire Water, SES Water and Portsmouth Water. So Thames looks on the brink of collapse. Um, if I were a betting man, um, you would guess that maybe it's those other three companies that might be uh, in pretty dire straits as well. Although I don't know more than this, so obviously this is not insider information or anything um, like that. Um, now, the potential collapse of Thames Water was debated in Parliament today. Environment Minister Rebecca Powell spoke on the government's behalf. The government is taking significant steps to ensure the water industry is delivering the outcomes bill payers expect and deserve. Water companies have invested £190 billion since privatisation in 1989. In April, the government plan published the Plan for Water, bringing together more investment, stronger regulation and tougher enforcement capacity for regulators and on those who pollute. Off what and the government take the financial resilience of the water sector very seriously. Off what are the independent economic regulator for the water sector, including responsibility for the financial resilience of the water sector. The sector as a whole is financially resilient. Responding for Labour, Jing McMahon complained that the Environment Secretary was not herself present to answer questions. Every Secretary of State, literally one of the largest water companies in Britain, potentially is going to go to the wall and the Secretary of State is missing in action. And it was clear to anyone looking on that a culture that allowed vital investment in ending the sewage scandal and in tackling water leaks sacrificed in favour of a gold rush for shareholders just was never sustainable. Now, just last year, as raw human sewage was being pumped out across the country, 
£1.4 billion was paid out to shareholders. And now all that was warned is coming to pass. Leaks are leading to water shortages, sewage dumping pollutes our rivers, our lakes, our seas, and the only thing on the up is debt at £60 billion. The Conservative Party cycle of privatising profit, usually for multi-billion pound foreign sovereign wealth funds, and then nationalising risk just isn't sustainable, nor is it a fair deal for working people. Caroline Lucas also spoke in the debate, asking the minister about the wisdom of privatisation. I would just like to bring the minister back to the figures that we've just heard, that water companies had no debt when they were privatised, since when they have borrowed £53 billion, and much of that has been used to help pay the £72 billion in dividends. Meanwhile, we have this appalling sewage scandal, particularly in the southeast of England. We have um, a, a failing water company, the Southern Water Company, that my constituents have no choice but to rely on, and it's considering raising bills by £279 per year by 2030, largely to pay for the investment that they should have been making in the previous years. Doesn't that just show that privatisation of water was a serious mistake and it needs to be permanently rectified? Uh, What I would say is that privatisation has enabled clean and plentiful water to come out of our taps. Uh, And it's actually unlocked £190 billion of funding to invest in the industry. That's the equivalent of £5 billion uh, annually. That's double what we had uh, pre-privatisation. I'm not saying that there is not a lot of uh, scope where improvements can still be made. And I've stood at this dispatch box many times, as has the Secretary of State, to say some of the actions of water companies are completely unacceptable. And that's why we've introduced all our targets, why we've introduced the storm so overflow um, plan, and why we've introduced our plan for water. To discuss the potential collapse of Thames Water and what the government should do about it, I'm joined by Kat Hobbs, director of the campaign group We Own It. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, could I start on the specifics of, of Thames Water? So, so what's your understanding of why Thames Water is in more trouble than the other privatised water companies at the moment? Good evening, Michael. Well, Thames Water has, has racked up this debt, more debt than the other companies, so a whole 14 billion pounds. It has had to deliver uh, projects um, like the super sewer, but they've mostly been paid for by government. So I don't I don't think there's any particular reason why Thames is more um, kind of at, at risk than, than the other companies, but obviously it has been mismanaged. I guess one factor that it could be is that um, McCary, the Australian investment firm, owned it until a few years ago. And they have a real track record for kind of extracting as much uh, value profit as, as possible. Um, uh, they've, they've got a sort of nickname of, of, of the, uh, the Aussie vultures or something like that. And so McCary really maybe, maybe took as much as possible out of Thames Water um, as it could. Um, and we know that uh, 2.7 billion was paid to Thames Water's shareholders um, up until 2017. Um, so recently, they've been paying a little bit less. Um, they've been saying they haven't been paying dividends, but actually they still have been quietly paying dividends to their parent company. Um, but I think that there's a whole track record, really, of, um, and this isn't just Thames Water, um, but Thames Water is maybe one of the most dramatic examples of taking as much uh, value out of the system as possible because these water companies are monopolies. And so um, we have no choice 
but to pay our water bills to them. And that puts them in an incredibly strong position that's not on market. Um, and so they can just rely on the fact that the bills will keep coming. And what they've been doing, the, the, the regional water companies, the privatised water companies in England since 1989, is using that position to hand out, as Caroline Lucas rightly said in that clip we just saw, 72 billion to shareholders in dividends and actually 54 billion a debt mountain, which is, uh, you know, just just incredible mismanagement. You know, I suppose it's, it's using that position to borrow lots of money, right? So they can go to the bank and say, we've got this incredibly reliable income stream because unless the people of London stop drinking water, um, we are going to get these monthly bills. And so please, can you lend us all this money? They've been lent billions of pounds. Now interest rates have gone up and the whole model seems like it's it's about to crumble. Your organisation is called We Own It. You campaign in favour of, of the renationalisation of industries such as water. The government seemed to be considering renationalising Thames Water. Would you take that as a victory if that does happen? The question is, why on earth would this be temporary public ownership? And that's what is, is being touted. It should not be temporary. It should be permanent. We're in a situation of crisis right now. When you look at, you know, water shortages happening now and they will happen more, sewage in our rivers and seas, these private companies and their shareholders are offering absolutely nothing in terms of value. And landing in the government's lap is this situation where, Thames water is, is about to collapse. Well, why not bring it into public ownership permanently, make it work for people, not profit? And what we would like to see is the government actually setting up a public ownership default, so a shadow uh, regional water authority in every area, so that we know that if other water companies collapse and if Thames water collapses, that these water authorities can take control of our water and run it for the benefit of us. And they could be really accountable to us as well. So they could work with communities to clean up our rivers and seas. All of the profits could be reinvested. That's the opportunity the government should be taking from this instead of just seeing it as, oh, just another private company. You know, we, but we have to pick up the pieces because there's no choice. Um, you know, people have to get they have to have water and they have to have wastewater dealt with. It's a real lost opportunity. We saw, you know, we saw the same with um, with bulb. You know, bulb could have been brought into public ownership when it collapsed in the private sector. Bulb, the the energy retail company, um, and but it, but it doesn't have to be that way. So when when rail track was in trouble, um, it was turned into it was nationalised, and then it was that became permanent, and it was turned into Network Rail, a company in public ownership. So that's all possible. But we have a government that time and again has let. The private sector take the profits while the public sector has to pick up the pieces. And obviously, the fear is the same will happen, but it shouldn't be that way. And it's, it's brilliant to hear politicians like Caroline Lucas calling really strongly for what should be absolutely normal. It's completely normal in other countries. Water working for people, not profit, rather than trying to pretend there's some kind of market and that it's useful to have these private companies involved. So you've got Caroline Lucas there who's arguing strongly in favour of nationalisation. The two main parties, neither of them want it. Now, they give slightly different arguments. So when you hear Conservatives arguing against nationalisation, they say that privatisation has actually brought in um, more investment. It's brought in better management practices. The Labour Party tend to sort of say, actually, we think privatisation was a bad deal, but nationalising it would become too expensive. Now, could you explain to me how the finances of this would work? So looking at that labour argument about sort of the cost of taking these things over, if if Thames Water goes bust, then essentially I presume one can take over the company without paying the shareholders anything, but also you would end up sort of inheriting the £14 billion in debt. Is that 
Is that correct? So you'd get it for free, but you then have £14 billion in debt. My understanding is if, if it went insolvent, then those creditors might just not be paid. And I think at the moment, um, there, there is an understanding of that in those mainly banks that are the creditors of Thames Water. And I, I think what the job of the British government should be would, should be to protect the public's interest in this and to say, actually, you know, Thames Water shareholders um, and the whole financial infrastructure around it, you know, they've, they've been benefiting hugely over the past 34 years. Why should we pay? Why should the public pay for this mess? And they should use whatever legal means they have to limit any liability for, for, for the British public, because we've already been paying. We've been paying our bills. Um, you know, and those bills have not been going into the infrastructure. They've been funneled out into uh, shareholder dividends and all of this debt. So if, if it could be made, if, it, if, if we could just leave the shareholders and the creditors um, to get on with it, but, but make sure that we're protecting the public, I think that's the way forward. Um, but that's, that is a huge opportunity that that could be done. And it's a much easier situation for public ownership than if you think you have to compensate the shareholders. Yeah, why, why should we compensate them? I mean, what what have they delivered? They've been extracting value for all of this time, um, and and I, I I don't think people feel. I know I know the kind of response that we get from people is, you know, seven out of ten people want water to be in public ownership. That includes a majority of Conservative voters. And when you say, you know, we could buy back these companies, people say, why why should we buy them back? We can take them back. Here's a situation where we can take them back. Is a situation where we can take back Thames Water, and of course that has to be unravelled in terms of the the debt that they owe. But I don't see why we should have the British government going out of its way to defend a handful of banks who've taken the risk to lend water to lend money to Thames Water, rather than protecting bill payers, protecting our rivers, protecting our water companies, which are essential public infrastructure. Let's talk about the argument that the Tories put forward in favour of keeping it in private hands. A similar argument often gets made by Robert Colville from the Centre for Policy Studies. And what he says is that actually, you know, contrary to popular belief, investment in the water industry increased us after privatisation. And their explanation for that is when it's nationalised and investment is decided by the government because it's got to compete with education and the NHS, the government tends to sort of skimp on investing in water. When it was in private hands, um, they could sort of crowd in private investment and and that that meant actually more money got invested than otherwise would do just nonsense um so i think the useful comparison to make is between the privatized english water companies and scottish water so scottish water is in public ownership it's consistently spent 35% more on infrastructure than the english water companies so if we in england have spent as much as scottish water has spent that would have been an extra, you know, an equivalent amount. That would have been an extra twenty-eight billion pounds going into our infrastructure. It's just not true to imply that water competes with other things like uh, health and schools. We pay our bills, and that money gets invested in the infrastructure. And and all of the money that has been invested in infrastructure since privatisation has been covered by our bills. It's not rocket science. They try to make it complicated to pretend that the private sector is is offering something useful. But what they've really done is they've taken a very, quite a simple business of water and wastewater management um, and and turned it into a financial maximising profit, you know, leveraging their position business. So they're, they're, they're financial money-making machines rather than water companies there to serve the people of England. Finally, could I ask you about international comparisons? So 
I mean, as far as I understand it, it's, it's quite unusual that we have a privatized water system. Sort of where else, where else does it like we do and, and, and who does it particularly well, do you think? Nowhere else does it like we do. Um, Scotland's an example of doing it really well. Paris is another example. Um, they've got a great governance structure where um, they have, you know, a water scientist as part of the governance structure. They have consumers, they have workers. Um, and they've managed to cut leaks dramatically. Um, and they've also, because they're, they're French and they're stylish, they've got still and sparkling water fountains um, in the city of Paris. Lots of French cities have actually brought water contracts back in into public management. They never sold off their assets and infrastructure the way that we do, um, the way that we did in 1989. But they've brought the management back into public hands because it wasn't working well being privatised. Some countries um, even make water privatisation illegal. So, for example, in the Netherlands and in Uruguay, um, it's not legal to have water privatised, um, which reflects how most of us feel about it. Um, it's not a resource that it should be allowed just to cream the profit off and, and uh, you know, sort of extract as much value as possible. It's something that we all rely on. We can't do without. Um, and it should be working for all of us. Let's go straight on to our next story. I complain a lot about private renting on this show, but there are a lot of private renters who have it a lot worse than I do, in particular, those who rely on housing benefits. And that's because while rents have rocketed over recent years, housing benefit rates have been frozen since April 2020. The result is that by last year, housing benefit only covered the rent of 12% of properties in the UK. And this year, that's now gone down to 4%. Yet with 38% of private renters receiving housing benefit, we can deduce that a lot of people are having to top up their rental costs with their own already stretched personal funds or find themselves unable to rent a home at all. ITV's Daniel Hewitt has released a report on some of those affected. An afternoon nap is an essential part of Elsie's day. But right now, where this one-year-old lays her little head is changing by the day. Her and her mom, Holly, are homeless. Today, they are staying at Holly's mum's, but she can only offer a sofa. So Holly is packing up preparing to stay at a friend's who has a spare bed for a few days. This has been their life now for weeks, because she cannot find anywhere affordable to rent in her hometown of Thanet in Kent. I feel like I'm literally trapped in a life that I didn't want, because no matter what I do, I've applied for over 20 properties in total. I don't see anything changing unless I physically take myself out of the area. Just talk me through how so, you, what you look at. I do this once a day. Mm -hmm. Holly is a single mum. She worked before having Elsie, but now relies on housing benefit to afford rent. Obviously, the cheapest is 795. I've actually applied for that one and got turned down because of my income is not high enough for them. But housing benefit has been frozen since 2020, while the cost of rent in Thanet has gone up and up. That experience of applying and being rejected for multiple properties is all too common. ITV also spoke to 62-year-old Laurie. I think I applied for about 31 and I had an answer off one. Laurie is 62. Her husband, Fred, is 72. In February, they were evicted from the home they rented for 12 years because the landlord wanted to sell. They're just so expensive. They receive £500 a month in housing benefit, but they couldn't afford anywhere close to their budget. They were put in a hotel for three months by the council, 
then given this temporary property, plagued with problems. Mould, bedbugs, at times no hot water and inaccessible for their needs. We just want somewhere decent, clean, that we can just live a quiet life, not a massive house. You work for years for it, you just feel everything has been taken away from you. And all you've got left is your pride, and I think that goes <laughs> to a certain extent. It's very hard, very hard. And yet, in another way, you're lucky we have a roof over our heads. Coventry City Council say they recognise the property is not ideal and would support Laurie and Fred to move should somewhere become available. These issues, they say, are not specific to Coventry. Now, I think that final comment is is very reasonable. I don't think these issues are at all specific to Coventry. They are across the country, and it's because of our completely dysfunctional housing system. So what did we do? We sold off all the council homes. That meant that the government started having to pay people's rent to private landlords who managed to push them up. You've got this huge landlord subsidy. The only thing worse than a landlord subsidy is not having the social housing and getting rid of the housing benefit, which is, you know, we've kind of done, right? We've frozen it. Sounds very technical, doesn't it? We're going to freeze housing allowance levels. That's what they have done since 2020. The consequence is you've got people saying, this has completely destroyed my pride. You know, a couple, 62 and 72, they've lived in their house for 12 years. They've done everything right. And now they're trying to move. But because, I mean, it's such an arbitrary decision as well, isn't it? So local housing allowance, that's the, the amount you get for housing benefit. What it's supposed to be, how it's supposed to be calculated is by looking at housing in a local area and saying, what is an affordable um, or, or how much money do you need to rent a house? I think they sort of do it maybe sort of the, the median house or maybe the bottom 30%, something like that. So it's, it's not the most luxurious house in the area, but what kind of amount of money means you have a possibility of renting a home? And they just decided arbitrarily in 2020, oh, we're going to stop changing that. We're going to freeze that. What's happened since 2020 is rents have gone up by, well, my rent's gone up by 30% and rents across the country have gone up by a similar amount. So they've said, oh, we're not, we're not gonna, we're just not gonna check anymore. We're not gonna check how much rents actually are. We're just gonna pretend that nothing has changed since 2020. And that's the result. Mike, this, this policy of freezing housing benefit at 2020 levels, I mean, it seems just completely outrageous, but it's something that we don't hear much about and the government don't seem to be under too much pressure on. I think it's beyond outrageous. And this story exposes two flaws in, in, our, in, in Britain today. I think it exposes flaws in the social security system and a social security system seems to have little regard to the cost that people actually face. So the fact that housing benefits have been frozen at 2020 levels, April 2020 levels, despite the fact, as you mentioned, Michael, the um, rents have risen, is absolutely absurd. So I think it exposes problems within that system. It also exposes problems within the, the housing system in general and the fact that we have this housing crisis, as many have mentioned. I mean, Safe and secure housing should should be a fundamental right rather than a luxury. But apparently in Britain, it's a luxury. You know, quite a few people, unfortunately, aren't able to, to live in safe and secure housing because they've been pushed into destitution because you know, government aren't you know, supporting some people. So it really is horrible. I think it exposes the housing crisis and the lack of you know, affordable homes and, and the lack of social housing available. Also, it also says a lot about our social security system and the fact that that's just so out of sync with people's lived realities. The government say, oh, we've got this problem where the housing benefit bill is increasing. Um, what are we going to do? They're not going to bring down the price of housing. They're not going to build more social housing. What they say, we're just going to freeze the amount and pretend it's not a problem. We're just going to ignore it. You know, 
You know, you know that thing we used to do, which is check what rents are like in a local community and then judge how housing benefits should, or what level housing benefits should be at based on that research, based on that assessment. We're just going to stop doing it. That solves the problem, doesn't it? Let's ignore it. Now, it might solve the problem for the, you know, the bean counters in the treasury, but it creates an enormous, gigantic problem for the people who the policy is supposed to be there to help, right? Which is people who need a house. Young mothers, like you saw there. Retired couples, like you saw there, right? The, uh, these are people who need somewhere to live. You can't just say, oh, we're going to freeze it and hope for the best, which is essentially what the government have done. I suppose they've said, we're going to freeze it. It's not hope for the best. We're going to freeze it and hope no one notices or no one who matters to us, no one who is a potential Tory swing voter notices. And I have to say, I mean, up to this point, they've been fairly successful in that. I'm sure they uh, they might well have thought, well, that was a great policy, wasn't it? We, we've frozen housing benefits since 2020 and barely anyone's noticed. The only people who have noticed are people who probably wouldn't have voted for us anyway. Now, on the topic of housing, Labour, um, they've come out today and, and Lisa Nandy's given a speech and they've been accused of another U-turn. So the Independent write this, Labour scraps pledge to bring in rent controls in latest U-turn. And then it says, Lisa Nandy says, controlling what landlords can charge could make people homeless. Looking into this, freezing rents was never a, you know, it's never a proper pledge by the Labour Party. It wasn't one of Keir Starmer's 10 pledges. I didn't say this will definitely be I mean, the manifesto at the, the next general election. But Lisa Nandy had previously suggested um, she would back giving local authorities the power to intervene in rental markets. Sadiq Khan and Annie Burnham have both asked for those powers. They've both called for rent controls. Um, Lisa Nandy now says that that would have the undesired effect of reducing housing supply. Labour will instead focus on boosting housing supply through the creation of local development authorities with new powers to purchase land at reasonable prices. Lisa Nandy also said Labour will continue giving council tenants the right to buy their homes. Mike, how much faith do you have that Labour will fix Britain's housing woes? Not lots of faith. I actually think Labour's position on housing and the position that was announced today by Lisa Nandy represents an ideological retreat. So Labour, I mean, at least tentatively, did say that they're going to be for rental controls. And now they've obviously said they're not going to be for rental controls. I think we've become used to Labour's U-turns. I think this definitely does represent an ideological retreat. And I think Labour's position on housing is also contradictory. So you mentioned there that Lisa Nandy says that, you know, we want to build more social housing. Um, but they also want to protect the right to buy scheme. Well, actually, the right to buy scheme is the reason why there's such a limited number of social housing available because it ate into the stock of social housing and it's left thousands of people unable to access social housing. So you actually can't hold those two positions. Those two positions are diametrically opposed. So I don't trust Labour, partly because their position makes little sense at all. And I think that Labour's positions also could be an electorally um, negative position for them to hold, given that a lot of their you know, young people vote disproportionately for the Labour Party at the moment. And housing is one of the big issues for young people. Now, if Labour had to hold this kind of middle ground position where they aren't actually adopting a really progressive stance on housing, that could affect how they're viewed by young voters. I mean, I think, I think there are a number of issues that affect how Labour is viewed by younger voters, but housing could be one of those issues. I actually think Labour, it doesn't suit them to have a really poor policy on housing. And actually for them, it's important to have a progressive stance on housing. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the big problem with, with Labour's housing policy, now, I think actually the long-term solution, that they're, they're kind of right, which is the long-term solution is we need to build a lot more homes. Now, we need a lot of them to be social, and it's not particularly helpful if they want to continue selling them off, right? So I always talk about this on the show. The best place 
we should look to for when it comes to what's what's the best way to house ourselves is Austria. 60% of people live in public housing, people from all different classes. And what it means um, is that one, people have affordable rent. And also, it's actually really good for the economy, right? Because you haven't got um, this distortion whereby so much of people's wages is going to people who aren't doing anything productive, just property owners. And asset ownership becomes less of an important part of of one's existence in society. You have a good public pension system. Now, Lisa Nandy in her speech today said the reason she's in favor of right to buy um, is because she recognized that, that owning an asset in this society is really key to having financial security into the future. Now, she is right. In this society, um, having an asset is pretty key to having financial security in the future. But unless you have a situation where everyone can have an asset, right? You're, you're condemning, if, if you say that's going to remain the situation, you're condemning 30% of, of the public to not have financial security, right? So I would say we should move instead. Instead of saying we're going to try and get a few more people in that privileged situation whereby they've got financial security into the future, um, and we're going to leave 30% of the people out of it, we should say maybe we should make asset ownership less crucial to having financial security. Now, how would you do that? You'd control house prices so people who own a home don't see this as a, a massive speculative asset and you'd make sure there are lots of other means by which people can secure their futures, especially into retirement, which is by doing things such as having a much better state pension. And that potentially would be affordable if the government didn't have to spend so much on housing benefit to pay landlords. So uh, there is a more rational way of doing this. Oh, we've got an update. Apparently, Keir Starmer is preparing to demote Lisa Nandy to make Angela Rayner shadow leveling up secretary. I mean, a reshuffle as soon as next month. Um, and the move is designed to settle conclusively lingering tensions between the Labour leader and his deputy. And um, this is from Patrick Maguire and Henry Zeffman at The Times. So very interesting. Um, so that would be a bit of a, you know, that would make Angela Rayner a more... That would give her more of a public profile, right? Because at the moment, she doesn't really have a job where she's commenting on things which are very live debates. Um, I wonder why he's getting Lisa Nandy out. I mean, potentially, he thinks she's... He wants to give Angela Rayner a better job and wants to get rid of someone who's moderately soft left instead of someone who's who's right wing. Um, potentially, that's what could be happening. Um, we will find out soon, I am sure. Next story. The government's own climate advisers have delivered a withering report on the UK's progress towards achieving net zero. The Climate Change Committee have said that fewer homes were insulated last year than the year before, despite soaring energy bills. They said there was little progress on transport emissions, no coherent programme for behaviour change, and not enough urgency on new wind and solar farms. In sum, they said they had less confidence our 2030 targets would be met than they did a year earlier. On the release of the report, the committee's CEO, Chris Stark, spoke to Sky. We look very much like we're off track now to hit the goals that we proclaimed to the world we wanted to hit by 2030 and beyond. So what we're saying today is there is still time to fix that, but we can't mess around for the next year and wait for the general election. We've got to have some big decisions from this government uh, to take us back on the path. Expensive? It could be expensive. It will be particularly expensive if we wait too long. And the lesson of you know, 15 years of having a climate change act in this country that guides policy for successive governments over time is that the sooner you act, the cheaper it is for the consumer and for the, and for the people living in this country. Why are politicians not listening? Well, I think politicians feel they're doing a little 
uh, and want to do something. But I think the key thing for us is that they're not doing enough. So the strategic decisions that the country needs to take on things like the transport system, how we heat our homes, we just heard from that report there, really important issues. They're happier to duck those issues and leave them till after the next general election. I think that's not going to work. So what we're saying today is you've got to make those decisions early and help the country on this, this goal for net zero by 2050. Now, one of the most politically salient issues when it comes to the climate transition has become home heating, and in particular, heat pumps. They've become a boogeyman of the political right. This Sky report suggests why the government might be to blame. And here we are, one heat pump. And how long have you had it for? Just six months. Nigel Murphy has ditched the gas boiler and gone for an electric heat pump. It's working effectively in his well-insulated house, but even with a government grant, it cost him £6,000. It's not a cheap thing to do, yeah? I mean, if, I, if, you had, if I had a, an accountant, he'd have told me not to do it because the payback on it is going to take some years before you, you, know, you get to a break even. The man who provided Nigel's heat pump says this is a major reason why the pace of installation is so slow. Families are forced to make a decision between the cost of living and green living. The level of support for heat pumps isn't enough. £5,000 doesn't bridge the gap in the cost between a boiler installation and a new system that's required with a heat pump installation. The issue with heat pumps and why they might not seem attractive so far is partly because the government isn't subsidising them enough. And that failure to provide proper subsidies for a green transition was criticised by the outgoing chair of the Climate Change Committee, Lord Devon. It's not just that uh, the United Kingdom has lost its leadership in the world on this issue. It is that the United States, with its remarkable new legislation, the European Union, with its very new legislation, and China, ones that are going to get the uh, investment. They are the ones that will get the new green jobs. Lord Deben also said the green lighting of a new coal mine and new oil and gas fields in the North Sea was, quote, utterly unacceptable. But the government has defended those decisions. This is Energy Minister Graham Stewart. 76% of the energy of the most decarbonised major economy in the world, us, comes from fossil fuels today. There is no button I can press that turns that off tomorrow. And as we will be uh, dependent on oil and gas for decades to come, even as we move to net zero, it makes sense that we should produce it here. To discuss the Climate Change Committee's report and the UK's progress to net zero, I spoke earlier to Leo Murray, co-director of climate campaign group Possible. I asked him if he agreed the report's conclusion that Britain was going backwards on climate change. We really have seen no progress since 2019 when uh, we signed the net zero 2050 target into law, um, except for a bunch of other targets being set. So we have world leading targets in the UK, um, mostly set under in Boris's time, um, but no delivery against those. And you know, the, the, the interim chair of the Climate Change Committee has uh, said it's a, it's a D for delivery. You know, and it, I've read lots of these progress reports, and this is by far the sort of most worrying uh, that I've seen so far. You know, it's, you've got these tables which give traffic light ratings to um, how, how are we doing progress on, on all of these different areas, the many, many different areas uh, of decarbonisation policy. And it's just reds and oranges. Everything's reds and oranges. So um, 
yes, we, we're going very badly. And uh, this just chimes with exactly the experience of everybody that has been trying to get the government to make progress. And what's the block here? Is it is it financial? Is it the government isn't putting up enough money? Are there sort of vested interests that are stopping them making the changes they need to make? Is it just that it's a bit harder than they originally thought it would be? I think, in fairness, the government is not really doing any government, right? So, uh, you know, whatever issue it is that you're interested in, um, you know, I mean, I tuned into <laughs> I tuned into the Today program this morning, and you know, the country is on its knees. So, so, so many things are going wrong. The legislative process on all sorts of different things, has stalled, you know, bills are being deferred into the future. The government's not really doing any government. So this isn't, it's not a surprise that they haven't been doing any government on this stuff. But specifically, I think the the key issue here is that we did the easy stuff when it comes to decarbonising the economy. And by that, I mean, we have substantially cut our emissions, our territorial emissions in the UK, um, by a lot more than most other people mainly by closing coal-fired power plants and building offshore wind. More, more to it than that. But, you know, power sector decarbonisation has gone quite well up to now. And that hasn't really, uh, hasn't really needed anybody to do anything differently, right, um, to do that, except for people in the power sector, uh, which happens all somewhere else, literally out at sea when it comes to offshore wind, right? The next phase here, actually meeting the target, means everybody doing everything differently so you know the way we heat our homes the way industry works across across every area of the economy we need to see action and that's where we've hit the button one of the key things i think which the climate change committee highlight here which is something that we work on very closely if possible is just the total absence of any public engagement or what is called demand side policy so policy that is intended to change demand for certain things um, you know, high carbon stuff specifically, um, instead of just changing supply, you know, the upstream, uh, the upstream stuff. So, and I, and I think that that is partly a, um, it's a hard philosophical uh, barrier with conservative political ideology. So it's partly that, um, that they don't, they don't do policy that is telling people how to live their lives, you know, or even attempting to change that. When they publish the net zero strategy, they accidentally published a paper alongside it, which was about, it was from the Nudge Unit, the full, formerly the Nudge Unit, the Behavioural Insights guys, saying, here are a bunch of things that we might, very vanilla things, right? Very sort of tiptoe things that we might do to help to steer people towards more sustainable behaviours. The government published that in error. They unpublished it the same day after we'd all downloaded it and disavowed it and said that, you know, government spokesperson said, government has no plans to tell anybody how to live their lives. So I think that's really explicit. But then it also just so happens that um, that is very aligned with the interests of a lot of Conservative Party corporate donors. So, um, you know, they do, they, they are literally recipients of a lot of um, donations from high carbon industries whose interests would be harmed by people consuming less of those products. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different factors at play here, but I think what we're seeing is the extent of what 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 are conservatives in government capable of delivering when it comes to decarbonisation? And we basically see they can't do anything on that um, because they can't countenance you know any policy to make anybody do less of anything. Um, and in particular, you know what we see, Grant Shapps. I don't know if you follow him on Twitter, Michael, but um, he has every day for the past fortnight 
he has done tweets which contain lies and disinformation, right? He's been repeatedly corrected on by fact-checkers, people like Carbonbury, attacking Labour's position on uh, oil and gas, new, you know, new licences for oil and gas exploration in the North Sea, which there is a very strong scientific and expert consensus that we can't exploit anymore oil and gas. We can't do any more oil and gas development, right? We mustn't expand that industry. You know, yesterday, Grant Shapps is like literally get hand in the megaphone to a North Sea Oil CEO saying this is going to starve us of energy. The Tories have taken us as far as they can. And like under Boris Johnson, he was a fan of like bombastic target setting. And so they set some very ambitious targets. And that was actually helpful in the sense that um, things like the net zero goal have been taken up enthusiastically by governments around the world. And it's moved things along, right? We've set a target to ban the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles. We've set targets for the deployment of heat pumps. You know, we've set a bunch of very uh, ambitious targets. We just haven't then developed any policy or implemented the measures that would be required to meet those goals. Yeah, there are a couple of those where we're doing okay. I mean, people are buying electric vehicles. right? I think if if it's car-based, if it serves the automotive industry, if you have pretty much accommodated themselves to the idea that all their cars are going to have to be electric in the future. That's policy they're able to do, right? And there's a lot of money in various different pots, a lot of public money in various different pots to support the switch to electric vehicles. Uh, But in almost every other area of policy, it's just failure. And and in some cases, nothing, nothing at all. So there there, there isn't, we've got very stretching targets for tree planting, for instance, but we don't have any policy to, to deliver any trees. So it's not happening. I do a lot of conservative media, and I'm often very sort of interested in what they seem to think are sort of the weak points of of net zero. And I mean the weak points in where they can exploit any concerns from the public. And the one they're really, really banging on about at the moment is heat pumps, saying heat pumps are going to bankrupt you all um, because of this target that there'll be no new gas boilers by 2035. Everyone is going to have to spend 10 grand um, on a heat pump in their house that isn't going to work particularly well. And I assume, you know, the amount that they keep repeating this, they, they seem to think there is some traction with this. What would the government need to do to make this a policy which isn't easy to attack from the right? I think that you know, you, what, you, what you need is um, a lot of evidence of success. And now we have that in other countries where, where heat pumps are very commonplace. Um, but for whatever reason, that doesn't work as a story to tell. It's like, oh, look, it works in Sweden. It's like nobody cares, right? What you need is examples of great success here in the UK. What we haven't done is things like training the workforce properly, right? If your boiler breaks, um, which always happens in the winter, and they're mainly breaking the winter boilers, and you call up a heating engineer, they don't say, have you considered a heat pump? They say, I will come around to your house tomorrow and install you a new gas boiler. And that's why, fundamentally, that's why heat pump uptake is so low. It's not, it's not a worse technology and actually, in many regards, it's a better technology and r- relatively straightforward to bring the cost down. Right? The story that we see with solar and wind, where some public subsidy at the outset, when it looked expensive, has created economies of scale, which deliver an experience curve, what's called an experience curve in industry, uh, which it de facto brings down the cost. And, you know, we're getting onto that. We're getting onto that. But we're just very, very, we're very early in the process. So how do you sell it to people? I think, yeah, you just need, you need real world examples 
from not just public figures and celebrities, because that does work, but actually peers, right? People, people who are like you, who are benefiting from a heat pump. You know, we just haven't been doing the things that you would need to do. We don't have the workforce. Like I say, if you call a heating engineer, they'll offer you a boiler, right? That's what they know. And if you look at the position of the GMB, you know, the, the GMB have been virulently anti-heat pumps. They're pro-gas. They like gas. So they've been lobbying for hydrogen for home heating, even though hydrogen for home heating uh, would be like five times as expensive for people in, in their households in terms of energy bills. Um, it's almost impossible to do it in a way that is cheap. And the reason why there is a lobby for hydrogen for home heating is because there's an enormous gas industry and they've got a lot of assets that they would like to uh, continue to use in the future. And, you know, you've got a willing accomplice in the form of the GMB uh, where loads and loads of the workforce are trained to service and install boilers. And that's what they'd like to continue doing. Uh, It's not exclusively a Tory problem, I suppose, the home heating thing. It is hard, but doing it well requires like a delivery framework that is anathema you know so like i don't know if you've come across heat networks but this is probably about a fifth of our heating needs we should be doing it with a heat network where the heat is just piped into your home that is extremely complex over 90 percent of homes in copenhagen for instance uh just get their heat that way so the heat is generated somewhere else and then it's literally piped in ducts into everybody's houses we haven't done any heat network um, development or almost none at all in the UK because basically heat networks are socialism uh, from the perspective of this government because they have to be delivered at a sort of community or above scale right they're, they're like local authority type things they're municipal projects and you, they, they require an element of coercion you know everybody that's in the heat pump zone needs to connect to uh, sorry the, the, the heat network zone needs to connect to the heat network rather than having their own device in their home that's generating heat and all of that stuff is just absolute anathema. So, so we've done none, none of that. Yeah, heat pumps were just very, very, very early on in the journey. Um, and we haven't made it any easier. You know, the, the planning rules make it quite difficult. I know lots of people who are sort of trying to do heat pumps, myself included. Not that straightforward. The technology is fine. It, that's not the problem. You know, it's, it's all of the delivery framework around it where we just haven't done the work that we would need to do to make this be the easy choice when your boiler does break. That was Leo Murray, co-director of Climate Campaign Group Possible. Um, in good news, I did find some strepsils while we were playing you that interview. In bad news, it doesn't seem to have made much difference. Nonetheless, we will go on to our final story. Just Stop Oil have just done one of their most audacious protests yet, interrupting an Ashes cricket match at Lords. This is the moment it happened. England wicketkeeper Johnny Bairstow was who you saw carrying off a protester. Mike, what do you think of this particular action? 
I'm a big fan. I'm, I'm a big fan of just the forced disruptive process. And I think it's one of those stories I actually try and discuss with my friends who aren't into politics because I know it's one of those that slips through the net because you often see a Just Stop Oil video on Twitter. And I was like, having a discussion with my friend about this, about, you know, just, just I think Just Stop Oil is like blocked a road and they were like doing a slow march on a, on a road in London. And he was aghast at like that Just Stop Oil like running rampant in the streets of London and just doing all this disruptive action. I mean, he cares about climate breakdown, but he's like, don't inconvenience normal people. But I actually think that a lot of the movements that have gone before Just Stop Oil, I'm thinking of the civil rights movements, I'm thinking of the women's suffrage movement, and we both, we all celebrate the, the gains these movements have made and, and the advances that have been made as a result of these movements. They were disruptive, and I think protest is inherently disruptive, and I think, you know, we have to be prepared to be inconvenienced as, as members of the public. So whether it's our, our crickets, whether it's the football, whether it's, you know, in the streets, these protests and these protesters who are fighting for our future should be allowed to protest. Now, I think the, the, the right to protest is definitely under threat under this conservative government. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I don't want anti-vaxxers to not be able to protest either, by the way, because I think in a democracy, you know, there should be a plurality of views expressed. For example, I don't, I don't think it should be that my, the protests that I support should be allowed to happen and the ones I don't support shouldn't be allowed to happen. No, I actually think that, you know, protest you know, dem- is, is, a, is a democratic right. And it's one of the things that divides us from, a, you know, a nation like maybe China and Russia, the fact that we're allowed to voice our discontent without the fear of our physical integrity being being violated, that could change. But the fact that we can do that, in theory at least, is what divides us from an authoritarian nation. So I actually think that people who are angry about just the boil and think that it's an absolute fast that they're allowed to protest should A, think about the gains that protests have made in the past, and B, think about a cause they care about and a cause they might want to protest about passionately. You know, if you're an anti-vaxxer who, who hates Just Stop Oil, you know, what if we, we stopped you from protesting? What if we said your destructive protest wasn't allowed? Because I actually think all destructive protests should be allowed, you know, and you know, we should actually defend right for all to protest. So that's where I, I land on the issue. I think it's one of those issues I, I debate in pubs all the time with friends, and it's a, usually very colourful, colourful debates. When I was at Glastonbury, not to go on about it, you know, but when I was at Glastonbury, I saw on, on, on Twitter a tweet from one of the, I can't remember what it was, one of the right-wingers, and they were saying, you know, GB News, if they cared so much about climate change, they should try and interrupt Glastonbury, or maybe they won't because too many of their mates are there. And I actually read that and thought, that probably would have been a good idea. Like, I think it would have been quite cool if they'd, if they'd sort of blocked, like someone on the main stage and interrupted the BBC footage or the, the, the BBC sort of streaming it all. The, the other thought I had is it probably is much harder to do that, right? I think the security for getting t- on the stage at Glastonbury is going to be harder than getting on the pitch at Lords because essentially, it's, you know, the, the way one gets on a stage, there's only some, some pretty small areas where one can do that, whereas a, a cricket pitch by nature, it has a very, very um, large border, which, which is pretty difficult to, to guard effectively. I mean, Mike, where would you like to see Just Stop Oil um, protest next? I was very disappointed they weren't part of Elton John's encore, to be fair. You know, you should have definitely done something at Glasgow, but no, your, your security point's absolutely valid. You know, wherever they want to is, is my answer. I, football games, cricket games, wherever it might be, I, I, I fully support the right to protest, however disruptive it is. And I think that, you know, the people, again, who have issues with just support should think about issues they care about and, and might want to in a future campaign heavily about. So maybe they should go on to, I don't know, do something with House of Commons or something with like a, a Premier League football match, like maybe like one of my rivals, I'm thinking like interrupt to Manchester United match when one of their centre forwards is through on goal or something. That would be very ideal for me. So I'm all for disruptive protest. 
Wicked. Um, I'm sure you'll forgive me for finishing seven minutes early this evening. I think my voice might be about to give way. Um, Mike Bancale, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Always a pleasure, Michael. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. We'll see how Moya's voice is holding up. Um, for now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.